0: A little rocket company with big plans, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome, I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Rocket geeks prepare to geek out as we tour interorbital systems with Random Milliron. She wants to put your satellite in orbit for as little as the cost of a decent used car. Bill Nye hopes the Falcon 9 rocket is about to return to orbit. He also wishes outgoing NASA chief scientist Ellen Stofan well. Bruce Betts and I have yet another beautiful work of space art to give away. This one has a Star Trek and Cosmos heritage. Senior editor Emily Lockdawala is back. Happy New Year, Emily. We're uh, getting it off to a good start with your look forward at uh, what's coming up this year around the solar system.
1: Yeah, I can't say I'm sorry to leave 2016 behind and welcome (laughs) 2017, but at the same time, I'm so sad that this is the last year for the Cassini mission.
0: Sad, but, but proud, I'm sure
1: proud and also really looking forward to this year because it's going to be quite different to past years on the mission. They're already in an orbit that passes really close to the F-ring. That means they're getting amazing ring views. They're getting the closest ever looks at several of the little tiny moons embedded in the rings. And then uh, in April, they're going to get uh, into an even closer orbit with the spacecraft in between the rings and Saturn. They'll determine the mass of the rings directly for the first time. They'll be probing Saturn's magnetosphere in the same way that Juno is probing Jupiter's magnetosphere, it's going to be a really exciting year on Cassini and it just comes to a, a sad but proud, like you say, end in September
0: project scientist Linda Spilker will be back on the show very soon, probably just in the next uh, few weeks. Now, Cassini is only one of, as I counted, 20, count them, 20 spacecraft exploring the solar system. We're not going to get to cover all of those, but uh, give us another highlight.
1: Well, I think another highlight for me is the fact that OSIRIS-REx is going to be returning to Earth for a flyby. Also in September, they'll get a chance to try all their instruments on at Earth at the Moon, and it'll be really fun to see those instruments operating. New Horizons is using the year to to take observations of tiny Kuiper Belt objects, so that'll be super fun. And Juno is going to be continuing its science mission, taking lots of pretty pictures of Jupiter along with its science data.
0: MAVEN has uh, gone into a new phase of the mission where they're going to be helping out other things around Mars.
1: That's right. MAVEN is now in its second Martian year of operations, which is very important for its mission to study Mars's atmosphere. But at the same time, they've also begun regular data relay for the rovers for the first time. They do two communications passes every two weeks, generally one for each rover. They've already gotten some really high data volume, 700 megabits for one Curiosity pass.
0: And this is so important because um, those other uh, orbiters that have been doing this work, they're they are getting kind of crotchety, right?
1: <laughs> they're getting uh, older. There's no disguising that. It's kind of funny, though. It, it's become a joke in my annual blog that every year I, I predict that we're going to finish the year with one fewer Mars spacecraft. <laughs> and every year those spacecraft show me up. And I'm so happy to be wrong.
0: <laughs> Speaking of spacecraft uh, at Mars, that is, uh, Curiosity, doing an- okay? Okay, except for a little problem with the drill.
1: Yeah, they seem to have developed some little internal debris uh, in one of the motors, the one that advances the drill down toward the ground as they drill. I think that they'll be able to get around this and use the drill again. It's just going to be kind of a painful process to troubleshoot it because it's intermittent. And that's the kind of problem that's really tough to troubleshoot, even at home, much less with a computer on Mars.
0: There is much more to look forward to that uh, Emily summarizes very well in her December 30th blog entry. It's actually a part two of Looking Forward to 2017. You can look for our colleague's contribution, part one. That would be Jason Davis looking at uh, stuff going on down here on Earth. Mostly lots of big rockets getting ready to fly. Emily, I look forward to talking to you again next week. Me too, Matt. She is the senior editor for the Planetary Society our planetary evangelist and a contributing editor to Sky and Telescope magazine. Also helping us start off the new year is the CEO of the Planetary Society, Bill Nye. Happy New Year, Bill. The uh, first conversation of uh, 2017.
2: Oh, it's exciting. It is, Matt, because I think they're going to fly the Falcon 9 in the next week and a half. Uh,
0: That's the hope, anyway, and this is a return to flight for that big rocket.
2: You read the news reports that are carefully released I think they may have filled the tank too fast last time, and the temperature difference between this very cold liquid oxygen and the tank caused it to crack, and then liquid oxygen found a spark someplace, and off it went. Man, that was, I went, you know, I drove by that gantry tower when we were in Cape Canaveral for the launch of OSIRIS-REx. That was, it was a real explosion. Falcon nine. Hmm. Oh no! I'm sorry. It was a fast fire, but it was a very fast fire.
0: <laughs> to use and Elon that, Musk's term for you know,
2: it. No, yeah. It was, and so I'm really hopeful that they're back to flight because that means then the Falcon Heavy will maybe fly in the next few months, and that means Light Sail Two will fly again.
0: On the second uh, Falcon Heavy. Yeah, on the
2: not second Falcon Heavy. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and they they'd release that uh, image, the first ever uh, image of uh, a piece of uh, of the Falcon Heavy. So I guess it's moving forward. Fingers crossed.
2: It's a big thing. You know, everybody, the Atlas V had how many engines, Matt? Uh, three? I'm sorry, I, I just said Atlas V. This is how you end your career. The Saturn V had how many engines? Five. Five yes. F1s. The Falcon 9 had how many, has how many engines? 27. <laughs> that's the Falcon Heavy. Has oh, I'm sorry, nine. Engines.
0: Of course, that's why it's but the it Falcon is, 9. It
2: really is a different approach to rocket design and using a standard engine over and over. But when you start to lift something as heavy as the Falcon Heavy is intended to lift, you end up with a lot of engines. And so you just wonder if your reliability is going to stay high. And you got trying to light that many fires at the same time. But one test is worth a thousand expert opinions.
0: I've read they can lose one or two of those as long as there isn't a fast fire in one and they can still probably achieve orbit. So, uh, you it's, know, it's, it's yeah. a
2: cool idea. What's uh, best of luck to them? Not that they need luck. <laughs> best of success. Before you go, uh, a word about Ellen Stofan. Uh, oh, yes. We love her. She was the chief scientist at NASA until a couple of weeks ago. She finally retired. Uh, she was great, or she is great. She really advanced science and exploration. And uh, for us at the Planetary Society, kept the eye on the prizes of discovering life on another world and let's do real science. Let um, commercial companies do the hauling of stuff to, uh, of material to low Earth orbit. And NASA do the exploring out farther and deeper into space. So best of luck to Ellen Stofen in her next endeavor.
0: And I hope we'll get her back on Planetary Radio before too long. Thank you, Bill. Uh, Thank you, Matt.
2: Happy New Year. Happy New Year
0: again to you as well. That's Bill Nye. He's the CEO of the Planetary Society. Bill Nye, the science guy. On now to uh, a little place that is building big rockets out in the Mojave Desert. We did a feature not long ago about subcontractors, the thousands of small and not-so-small companies that make the millions of components that allow us to reach and explore space. But there are also companies that are going it more or less alone. Interorbital Systems is one of them. iOS is a neighbor of the spaceship company and other aerospace pioneers that call the Mojave Air and Spaceport home. When I visited them on a windy morning last October, I was greeted at the front door by CEO Randa Milliron. Randa and her husband, iOS Chief Technology Officer Roderick Milliron, founded the organization just over 20 years ago. Since then, they have steadily pursued a singular vision, get their own and clients' payloads into Earth orbit and beyond as inexpensively as possible, relying on the simplest possible technologies and approaches. It has been a long, long haul, but Randa, Roderick, and their small staff believe they are on the edge of success. And a lot of clients around the world are along for the ride. We began with a tour of the shop floor. It could have almost been any machine shop, except... Right behind you is a cool-looking rocket.
3: Yeah, it is. It's It's a flown rocket, actually. It's our first flight test vehicle. It's a CPM That's the core component of all our rocket systems, a common propulsion module, uh, meaning it has an engine, it has propellant tanks, it has a payload section, also has a brain. We use these uh, in bundles to create all the subsequent Neptune series rockets that we'll be using in various missions.
0: So it can fly on its own or, and there are some really great illustrations on your website that show these big cubes basically uh, of these units bundled together.
3: Yeah, that's a wonderful concept that we discovered, you know, many many decades ago. I believe it was in popular science. It was a story about Lutz Kaiser from Otrog, uh, the German company from the 1970s, and he had come up with the idea of mass producing identical single modules and bundling them to meet various mission requirements. We thought that was brilliant, you know, and he was actually the first person that, that I could think of who who decided to use commercial off-the-shelf parts uh, for his rockets. So he famously used uh, Volkswagen uh, windshield wiper motors to turn valves or something like that. But we were so impressed with his ingenuity and his um, game-changing uh, concept that uh, we thought, well, wow, this is great. This guy can do this. You know, maybe... Maybe someday we can do this sort of thing.
0: It's a fascinating story, which I had, I, I had never heard of this work. And we'll talk about it maybe a little bit more later. If iOS had as a motto, uh, it probably isn't keep it simple, stupid, but, <laughs> mm-hmm. the, you know, kiss. Mm-hmm. But that does seem to be the guiding principle here.
3: Yeah, it's radical simplification of systems. And that yields less parts, less things to fail, less cost. That simple system is, in and of itself, more robust because of that sort of safety factor that you get with with uh, using um, simplified systems that are contained in these CPMS, and avoiding using uh, really um, expensive and failure-prone parts like pumps and. Other things that people feel are required on a rocket. This is a a simplification. It's a radicalization in terms of going to the essence of what a rocket is.
0: And when you say pumps, you're talking about those. They're they're amazing pieces of technology, the turbo pumps Mm -hmm. that we see on almost all other liquid-fueled rockets. And this is a liquid-fueled rocket. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have pumps... Mm-hmm. spinning at amazing speeds, how do you get your fuel and oxidizer out the rear
3: end? Well, there, there are a variety of ways, and pressurization is the simplest way. We use pressurized, uh, in, in some cases nitrogen, in some cases helium, uh, pressurized gas to push the propellants through the rocket into the combustion chamber. That is you know, one of the ways that we keep costs down and that we can have a vehicle that can be easily mass-produced without having to go through either buying those radically expensive uh, things like turbo pumps or building them in-house. And again, that's, that's very labor-intensive, uh, very, very uh, time-consuming. But we're, we're looking for really something that we can, we can turn these things out like sausages, you know? <laughs> the most Spartan type of vehicle that has been developed to date And again, I do owe a lot to the OTROG concept of making these uh, identical modules with standard industrial methods. And again, I guess I should also give credit, I guess we are standing on the shoulders of giants. There was a study done called the Minimum Cost Design Study at Aerospace Corporation, I think it was in the 60s. And there are many of those concepts that we also incorporate to the design philosophy that, that, that drives all this, like using... Standard industrial methods may be borrowed from other industries like shipbuilding. You know, because if you say aerospace and you're trying to price something out, immediately the, the price skyrockets. You know, they'll quote you like 10 times what it should be in, in a yeah. normal world, right? That's one method. And also using, don't use exotics. We use standard industrial chemicals for our propellants, so we don't have to pay, you know, $100 or $1,000 a pound, but pennies, you know, on the dollar uh, for the propellants that we use in terms of making this, you know, the whole con-ops of this simple, decided to avoid spaceports. First, for the tremendous cost involved in that. Second, for the, the scheduling problems that, uh, that happen when you have to get in that spaceport line. Third, we wanted freedom to launch on demand, essentially, and uh, to give our customers uh, a variety of, of orbits we chose to go to the ocean to do our launches. So I guess we've combined OTROG, minimum cost design, ocean launch, and that's given us our winning system.
0: And behind us here, I, I caught it out of the corner of my eye as, we, uh, as I walked in, there's a whiteboard and on it is a drawing of a partially submerged rocket, yes. which I assume it doesn't have to be simple at sea. There's sea launch, mm-hmm. which is not exactly a simple system. But this looks like it is.
3: Yeah, well, sea launch used to call us mini sea launch. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and, and it is it is that. It's, uh, our spaceport is what you see in that, that little drawing. It's a rocket sitting in the water with a ballast unit, and that's the spaceport. We can take it anywhere we like, we'll be licensed to our particular latitude and longitude. This gives us you know the savings of, of millions and millions of dollars uh, over trying to launch out of again, some federal spaceport that is in a fixed position and can only offer customers certain inclinations. Here we can move this, and you know, it is a completely mobile type of launch arrangement. It just gives customers uh, more options in terms of the types of orbits that that we can deliver to them.
0: You mentioned chemicals off the shelf Mm -hmm. as well. Turpentine,
3: Yes, yes, arty, right? <laughs> well, turpentine is our, uh, it, it, well, it's a hydrocarbon, not too terribly different from like kerosene or uh, some of the other propellants that are in use. Very dense, has a high uh, density specific impulse, as does our oxidizer, which is uh, white-feming nitric acid. And again, a standard industrial chemical used, actually used in making a carbon composite. Mm. It's kind of, kind of interesting that the propellant is, <laughs> is housed in something that's made from it as well. Because so, you got
0: a composite tank.
3: Yeah, we have. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, we do. We have uh, composite structures. All these vehicles will be made of carbon composite that is uh, wound. We've developed a filament winder over here on the other side. Want to take a look at that?
0: Yeah, sure. Let's and, walk uh, over there.
3: Yeah, the uh, that's the key to making uh, really robust but lightweight tankage.
0: This is a pretty simple rig yeah. that we're standing in yes. front of and there's something that looks like tiny, I mean that looks it's like a an tiny aluminum
3: tank. Yeah, it's a it's an aluminum shell and then we uh, wind the carbon filament around it in uh, various patterns that give us strength akin to the strength of steel. Also for rocket purposes, it's not only is it strong but it's light mm-hmm. and, and you know that's always the problem when you're making a rocket, do you make it light enough but then you have to make it strong enough, you know, to withstand all the forces that are at play. That's why they
0: make professional tennis rackets out of them now.
3: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, really, really. And this is an in-house project here. We've designed this large uh, tank manufacturing unit. We can actually uh, vary the length of the tanks, 22 feet up to 30 feet, and uh, various diameters. And it's, it's kind of like a little robot. The guys you met, um, Owen and and, uh, and Bryant—they're hiding out around yeah, the corner now. the corner, <laughs> these these are the guys who are responsible for putting this unit together and um, you know writing a lot of the uh, software that uh, drives it. This is kind of a secret weapon, I guess, in terms of mass production. This this helps us get to the point where we can turn out many tanks a day, and then have those kind of stored on our shelf yeah. so we can do the commercial off the shelf. Thing, but we stock our own shelves with a you know, with a components, so it's a company that's really completely vertically integrated, I mean, more more so than any that I know of at this point.
0: And this was no small challenge because up until not that many years ago, the big guys, the big aerospace contractors, mm-hmm. were really having trouble trying to make stuff like this sure. out of composite.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Right. That that was a huge breakthrough, in, well, in aviation and in space, you know. And, and tennis rackets as you point out (laughs) (laughs) for us it's it's you know it's our little robot here you know and and this will be one of many that are uh, turning out the tankage so if we are called upon to do say a rapid response type of mission uh, we would be able to pull those tanks you know off the shelf bundle them in various configurations like a a, a Neptune 3 would have uh, three CPMs bundled Mm. A Neptune 5 would have uh, five or and a Neptune 8 which we're using in our Google Lunar X Prize mission. The Neptune 8 Luna, that is eight, eight of those uh, CPMs with an enhanced engine. We're, we're wholly into this modular thing. Everything is modular that we, we design. We have one set of tankage, it's identical. We have an engine that is identical, there's a 7,500 pound thrust engine for the uh, standard uh, CPMs. We bundle those to give us the requisite thrust that we need to lift a particular type of payload to a particular altitude. So, so all of these identical little Lego parts mm-hmm. we have there uh, ready to assemble. With the, uh, the ocean launch aspect of that too, we can do a, a, a really rapid turnaround, and we, we could be ready with a rocket within a week. We're currently in flight test phase now, so we're testing the single units going through our licensing and uh, various analyses that we need to do to get all of that to happen for our orbital missions also we're doing we're doing actually a space altitude mission prior to the to the um, orbital mission so that'll be a ballistic flight a suborbital space altitude flight
0: and that'll also be launched from the ocean
3: yeah yeah we want to we want to start doing everything uh, from our main center of operations which which will be the water we're, we're at a really critical phase now, and it's it's exciting and terrifying and you know all, <laughs> all of those things
0: <laughs> Well, space is hard, which we'll probably <laughs> come it. back to when we sit down in a few minutes. but anything you want to say about the the business end of uh, of the cPM the rocket engine
3: yeah that's uh, the rocket engine is designed uh, by Roderick Milliron, uh my husband and co-founder of the company and the CTO here in the Really, the brains behind the, all these systems.
0: Who has passed by a couple of times, he's, getting more. He's work actually done.
3: working on uh, on the next uh, iteration of this this rocket. So, um, not only is he a designer, but he uh, he taught himself to machine, and hmm. he makes the initial parts. He makes the prototypes. That's kind of an interesting opportunity for any engineer to be able to design while making the part. Also, um, change you know change it if something looks like it should be you know slightly different. This is gives him a lot of freedom in the doing what he does best. When we started uh, doing our rocket work, we started with engines. If you don't have an engine, you don't have a rocket. Right? We've seen people in the industry you know, go the opposite way, starting with a, a large uh, rocket or plane and then uh, trying to fit an engine in to that existing body. And and sometimes
0: have to change what engine they're going to use or in the middle, st- in midstream.
3: Or they're stuck and they can't change, You know, so then they, they try to seek another path. But We started with the engines and the propulsion systems, and that was 20 years ago with the Pacific Rocket Society, Experimental Rocket Society. Got a good
0: friend who works with them.
3: Oh, yeah. The whole kind of framework of of that group, one of the longest-standing experimental rocket groups in the world, that was to to push regular folks, right, Mm. into the opportunity to make real functioning liquid rocket engines. So this was a... Fabulous mentor setup. We had people from Aerojet, Marquart. These are the, the the old companies, North American. You know of yeah, uh, you know true. the people who made the original rockets. Those people were our mentors. You know, and it, and it was all hands on, and it was completely fabulous. You know, we, we there was there's a test site, and uh, also a site we still use for our test flights uh, north of Mojave. That was a fantastic opportunity for all the people involved. Many of the people involved there have now gone on to uh, make rocket companies of their own. You know, that group and, and that area still exists uh, for, for experimentation. Yeah, they're
0: still flying rockets out of there, right?
3: Yes. I don't know of anywhere else in the world where you can do that sort of thing if you're, you know, not a government entity. You know, you, you know to do that as a private citizen is a, one of the great things of being an American, I suppose. I don't know, but this is, this is really one of the only places that that can happen. You've heard of a tube sat, maybe, but well, I know you've heard of a cube sat.
0: Cube sats sure. yes. Tube sat's not until I started to learn about you folks.
3: Yeah, yeah, we uh, we invented the tube sat. It's another form factor of a Pico satellite. This is the class of these, these tiny, and I, I do like to call them handheld because you can see it fits in the palm of your hand. Yeah, we do right? the same
0: with light sails sometimes.
3: Yes, yes. You know, that's... Probably the the best STEM tool ever invented, hmm. and uh, we have uh, at this point I think something like thirty or forty school systems around the world that are using our kits as the center of their their curricula. And
0: then over here is obviously a tube set.
3: Tube set, yeah. A tube set is is different from a cube set. It's more cylindrical. Uh, cube set also has a an internal chassis.
0: That's sort of the frame, right? Yeah,
3: uh-huh. but the tube set has no frame. It's made completely of circuit boards. So it's lighter, but it gives you almost the same amount of uh, payload space. It's about 250 grams of, you know, put your app in there, whatever it is, you know, whether it's a camera or micrometeoroid counter or whatever it might be or some art project, you know.
0: Art project, I saw Mm -hmm. that on the website. I'll Mm -hmm. ask you about that. But also using a lot of off-the-shelf parts like your your, uh, radio equipment.
3: In fact, when the uh, CubeSats were originally invented by Bob Twiggs and Geordie uh, Biuswari, it was an attempt to find a low-cost student satellite that could be built, you know, was simple enough to be built, cheap enough to be built. They went with off-the-shelf items because these satellites were not meant to last for, you know, five or ten years. They were supposed to be short lifespan mm-hmm. items that, you know, would go up to prove a point or do an experiment or whatever it might be. And I remember Bob talking about the fact that everybody was laughing at him at first, like, what can you do with that little thing, you know? And then uh, suddenly it's like everybody wants them, you know, the military wants them, uh, you know, every sector of... Of academia and the corporate world, once at least one CubeSat—we call them personal satellites, right—or a constellation, you know, or several constellations. So that—that that is really the fastest-growing sector in the whole aerospace industry. To date, we have 135 payloads booked on our manifest.
0: Absolutely amazing.
3: Yeah, it is, and and I I keep thinking that each each one of those payloads, you know, is, is very likely spurring at least one company if not more because there's usually usually a group of people involved in putting them together so it's just going to get more intense and more stuff for us to launch right
0: but but also school districts right at the top of the launch manifest my alma mater UCI sat
3: (laughs) yes 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 Uh, from uh, you know from the universities uh, you know all the way down through uh, uh, middle schools some in Brazil, you know, mentored by their space agency, others in the U.S., in Moldova. It's astonishing when I do take a look at that list and see, you know, how many countries are represented uh, represented and how many age groups and how many, you know, sectors of thought. It's largely science, but it's also music, art, advertising. uh,
0: Burial service?
3: Uh, we offer that. We haven't had anybody on board yet, <laughs> but but that's uh, that's an option, yeah. You can buy a, you know, a tube sat there and fill it up with as many relatives as you like, and we'll <laughs> be happy to launch them.
0: Random iron, CEO of Interorbital Systems in the Mojave Desert. I'll sit down with her for a fascinating conversation when we return. This is Planetary Radio. Hello, I'm Robert Picardo. Planetary Society board member and now the host of the Society's Planetary Post video newsletter. There's a new edition every month. We've already gone behind the scenes at JPL, partied at Yuri's Night, and visited with CEO Bill Nye. We've also got the month's top headlines from around the solar system. You can sign up at planetary.org forward slash connect. When you do, you'll be among the first to see each new show. I hope you'll join us.
3: Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Whitney. We've been building a youth education program here at the Planetary Society. We want to get space science in all classrooms to engage young people around the world in science learning. But Kate, are you a science teacher? No. Are you? Nope. We're going to need help. We want to involve teachers and education experts from the beginning to make sure that what we produce is useful in your classroom. As a first step, we're building the STEAM team. That's science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics. So, teachers, to learn more about how you can help guide this effort, Check out planetary.org slash steamteam. That's planetary.org slash steamteam. And help us spread the word. Thanks. Bye. Bye.
0: Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. Random Mill Iron is showing us around interorbital systems, the company she founded with her husband, Roderick, in 1996. We've made our way back to her office, where she is surrounded by space mementos, bric-a-brac, and a few pieces of prototype hardware that they hope to send into orbit, and maybe to the moon in the next year or so, and sitting at a table that is shared by this, this very interesting model. Tell me about this.
3: Yeah, this is a model of uh, the Neptune 5. It's a, it's a five-module orbital rocket dedicated for small-sat use. It'll lift about uh, 50 kilograms worth of uh, payload. Bonus. Over a hundred
0: pounds for those of us stuck in the English mm-hmm. system, and
3: yeah. the um, we could lift probably fifty small satellites uh, on this. We have a a deployment unit that's sort of like a, uh, I guess if you look at a a revolver, you know, like a cartridge set up. Where yeah. You, each of the of the satellites inhabits its own little payload bay, or like a beehive sort mm-hmm. of thing, you know, little little uh, cell for. Uh, it's ride to space, and then it's ejected individually uh, out of those slots of the payload berths. But uh, that sits at the top of this configuration of the five bundled modules. This rocket works in a different sort of way. It uses what's called parallel staging. And these outer four uh, CPMs, or modules, serve as the first stage. Uh, when they're depleted, there's a, another exactly the same unit in, inside there nested within those four. Mm-hmm. That is um, the second stage, essentially. So
0: those outer CPMs, they fall away, mm-hmm. and that other stage takes over. right.
3: and And the rocket you see out in the other room that we looked at that initial CPM, that's actually the second stage of our orbital launch vehicle. So we've flown our second stage already. Hmm. I kind of like to think that's a you know it's a pretty good technology demonstration to show that we're on the right track of uh, <laughs> being able to do space launch, right? We're as I said, we're still in our test phase. we We expect our launch licenses and, uh, you know, all the permissions we need to come in uh, after the test flight series, which uh, should be sometime around, I, I would say, the second quarter of 2017. So we're looking to go operational for orbital launches then. In the meantime, we have some buildup, a high-altitude suborbital launch or a space-altitude launch that will go to our our normal area of operation. That's a 310-kilometer orbit, circular polar orbit. Uh, we chose that Uh, because we would intentionally limit the lifespan of the satellites. We don't want to create space debris, but we want to give people enough time to do whatever experimentation they need to do.
0: So they'd be up for some number of weeks. Yeah,
3: somewhere between three weeks and three months we're looking at, and uh, that depends on solar activity or space weather. If, Mm. If the sun's very active, it'll heat the atmosphere and cause it to expand. And because that's a pretty low orbit... Uh, it'll increase drag on the, the tiny satellites, yeah. and they will come in faster.
0: Yep, yeah. And this is also why LightSail, when it was in low-Earth orbit, mm-hmm. it was in space, but there was still so much drag that yeah. uh, it didn't stay up for long,
3: Yeah, only yeah, about a week. But I love the whole concept. Uh, and,
0: of course, a polar orbit means that your your customers, their spacecraft, are going to see the entire Earth as it revolves right. or rotates under them.
3: Exactly, and that that's why it's uh, such a popular orbit for uh, Earth observation. In, in the case of our personal satellite kits, right, and the people who build them, uh, it gives those people an opportunity to contact their, uh, their spacecraft uh, with uh, three good passes where they can actually hmm. have, uh, you know, if they need to uplink or downlink, whatever it is they want to send or receive, they, they have that opportunity. It covers the world in sort of a, I've seen it described as orange-shaped wedges. We like to call it the new industrial zone. In polar orbit
0: <laughs> for a new industrial revolution it
3: has. have you flown
0: i don't think you have yet have you these you called it the cpm 2.0s though those no that's four uh, uh, that, quad units and in
3: fact uh, we uh, we were uh, refitting the original uh, cpm which we flew that carried four payloads on test flights in you know, suborbital flights but they were uh uh, people who were building their satellites for the orbital launches wanted to make sure that they could withstand the uh, you know, the rigors of flight and the G-forces and vibration. Mm-hmm. So we carried four test units, uh, one of which was uh, from the maker of the satellite for light sail for Boreal Space. That was yeah, uh, yeah. Barbara, Barbara Plant's uh, company.
0: Love Barbara. Yeah, mm-hmm.
3: Barbara's great. <laughs> Hi, Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it actually uh, provided uh, real flight data from the satellite. Again, a suborbital flight, but still usable uh, when configuring uh, the the actual experiment for in space use. These rockets, even the ones the individual CPMS that are used as sounding rockets or research rockets, have value, you know, not only for us so we can see how how they're performing, but for, you know, for our our clients, uh, you know, to check uh, the stability and uh, the strength of their their uh, their own satellite yeah. designs.
0: We've said it before. We say it all the time on this show. Everybody says it in the industry. Space is hard. You've been at this for twenty years now. You're still going.
3: Yes. But
0: you're surrounded here at the Mojave
3: mm-hmm. Air
0: and Spaceport by companies that gave it a shot and are no longer around. I mean, I was. I told you earlier coming in. I was happy to see that that uh, Roton uh, rotary rocket is the, the the prototype is still sitting over there. Even though the company is long gone, and you've had other neighbors come and go,
3: mm-hmm.
0: you guys are still at it. How are you
3: able to hang in? Well, we're just—I yeah, guess—we'll we'll be the last one standing. Right? <laughs> we have a concept that you know, that really has legs. It's something that should have been brought to market, you know, many many decades ago, right? Uh, but it was—you know—it faced. Uh, Face many political challenges, and, and you're, you're talking about
0: that O-Trog yeah, attempt yeah. in the 1970s,
3: right? That that um, you know nobody who's making you know 60 or 70 million dollars a pop on a on a launch hmm. wants to see that kind of revenue go away. But what the modular systems of the O-Trog system, or now the Neptune system, which is the evolved uh, O-Trog system, what that means in terms of cutting costs, and you know people like to throw around the the D word, you know disruptive. Hmm. Technology, but this truly is. We're looking at, at offering uh, orbital launches for—dare I say it? Please fi- do. Five hundred thousand dollars.
0: I wanted to get to that next. Mm-hmm. I'm from the Planetary Society. <laughs> let's just say hypothetically, mm-hmm. uh, and I do not speak for the Planetary Society when it comes to this kind of thing. We're we're some nonprofit or university or whatever. You've got that long manifest of mm-hmm. places that e- they don't even have half a million dollars. I want to put up a one-unit cubesat or the smallest cubesat. Mm-hmm. I give you a call. What happens and how much do you tell me that's going to cost? Well,
3: when I mentioned the five hundred thousand dollars, that's for the whole manifest. That's I'm, the, I'm sorry, the payload. The payload, uh, you know, potential of this this uh, this particular. You get rocket, the whole rocket to yourself. You would get, for half yeah, a million. you would get that whole payload space. If you're coming up on a rideshare, these most of the of our uh, flights are configured as rideshares. You. Could pay as little as eight thousand dollars for a tube sat kit and launch. Uh Not only do you get the launch, but you get a kit to teach you how to build your own satellite, and that's our academic price, you know. So, and it's not much more if you're a corporate entity, government entity, military entity. It's it's twice the academic price, you know. Like students get a student price on software, right? So so they get a student price on on this. Most of the people involved here come out of the academic world. I'm mm-hmm. a teacher. I mean, Rod's been a teacher. A lot of the other people are. We like to see actual hands-on, you know, work results that can be measured and, and, and can be savored. Right in this case, you know.
0: Good to educational principles, but yeah. for the benefit of the audience members mm-hmm. who are now shaking their radios or their smartphones because they think there was some kind of a dropout there. <laughs> you said eight thousand yeah. dollars for a spacecraft. Yes, and the launch that gets yes. it into now, lower, low Earth orbit.
3: Now you have to build it yourself. Okay, okay. but but there's a, the, the kit. It comes with a very extensive guide. There's a uh, also a very active forum uh, of people who are doing nothing but building our kits. They help if there's a problem, and we have people on staff who also help. It, it's something that I always say. You know, I. It, if I were a sixth grader today and I had a chance to build a satellite, you know, I mean sure. it's something you'd kill for, right? You know? For for eight
0: thousand. I, I mentioned that figure to one of my colleagues at the mm-hmm. office yesterday, and he said, What? You're kidding. Let's do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and really? this was again not somebody who decides mm-hmm. what payloads the planetary society might put in space. Well,
3: I think it's also the perfect Christmas gift, right? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's certainly more within reach than uh, the people who want to take whole human beings up, mm-hmm. even though that's also getting cheaper. So you have this manifest, mm-hmm. you said over 100 now lined they're,
3: up. today. As of today, there are 135. We just signed on a, a, a Polish group called Sat Revolution. They were a gaming company and they hmm. decided to move into space-based communication, Internet, things of that nature. And uh, this is the first one that they're going to... Launch with us and, and it looks like there'll be many more, in fact, a constellation, so uh, this is the kind of the new trend. People start with one and, and then it ends up in you know one hundred and two hundred satellite constellations.
0: It must be addicting <laughs>
3: uh, uh, but it's also you know in terms of cost you're not spending billions and billions of dollars on one monolithic big iron kind of satellite mm-hmm. well, they call it disaggregation you're taking that apart and assigning. Uh, all the functions to little portions of an array uh, or like a swarm of robots. Yeah, yeah. So if something breaks down on one, you can assign its function to another. It's also not such a headable target, you know, in terms of space war and things of that nature. If somebody wants to take out your company's satellite, it'd be harder if you've got it spread out among...
0: If you've got 50 or 60 more of them up there. Little robots, right. Yeah. Space art. How might an artist make use of a spacecraft?
3: Well, there are various ways. I consider myself a space artist, also, and there's a piece of space art down there against the wall. I actually had an exhibition of uh, space art at the KGB the Gallery in LA.
0: Now, this looks like a piece of rocket uh, hardware that went through something it shouldn't have.
3: Well, yeah, and, it's, and again, you know, art. It's one of a kind; won't happen again. And, <laughs> in that case, uh, that was a uh, sort of a uh, uh, steel pyramid that was made to cover a, a piece of equipment that we were also testing during a launch but that was subjected to the 7,500 pounds of thrust mm, mm-hmm. and the 5,000 plus degree flame that hit it and you can see that that pyramid is now a beautifully twisted and mangled piece of art that will grace my wall here soon i've haven't put it back up since I brought it in from the exhibition. That's but, my kind of art. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's it's fantastic. It's kind of action art, I guess, you know, the resultant. There's a piece in the corner that was uh, a friend of ours uh, was making solid rockets, and uh, he launched it, and it uh, exploded in midair, and it uh, ignited the aluminum and melted it in a you know, really fabulous way. Yep, yeah. And it was twisted and beautiful, <sighs> and again, one of a kind. I had him sign it because I thought it was magnificent
0: <laughs> looking at that piece of exploded literally exploded aluminum mm-hmm. again space is hard yeah you would hope to do this sooner like most people who sure. do this it's mm-hmm. taking longer than you expected yeah. mm-hmm. you think this is i mean you were talking about this happening possibly next year 2017 yeah. is it realistic are you going to be able to it's pull realistic off?
3: if all our all our tests goes as planned and uh, all our paperwork you know, gets through in a in a in a way that's uh, timely. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I think that's a that's a realistic date for us. So we're looking also during 2017 to do a lot. I mean, there's we have a lot on our plate. We have a a Google Lunar X Prize flight. Next thing I was going to ask you about that we are trying to finish there before the end of the year. We have a precursor lunar impactor flight that we're doing with Ed Bell Bruno. Uh, it's a d- orbital designer. He, we did the uh, High Ten mission, save oh, yeah. that mission. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the Japanese mission. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. that is, his company's uh, innovative orbital design. But we're um, we're working on a uh, on something that we'd love to do in the like somewhere around the third quarter after we do our first orbital launch.
0: Third quarter of 2017. Yeah,
3: to do a lunar impact with a it, it's called an N3 an Neptune three, just a brute force mission to hit the moon and to be the first commercial companies that do that. Also. It's a test mission for our, our trajectory, our communication. So all, all the things that, that will go into the actual uh, Google Lunar X prize attempt.
0: And who are you working with for the Google Lunar X Prize? We're in
3: Team Synergy Moon. And we just had our uh, launch uh, contract verified by the X Prize, Which is a big deal. Yeah, there are there only, yeah, I think, three it, of you there now? There are only three now. We, we uh, went to Tel Aviv uh, for the the summit google lunar x prize summit and uh, it was hosted by one of the other teams who had their contract verified that was space il the israeli team moon express also has a, a contract maybe there will be four at the end of the year
0: uh, another big challenge of course getting your launch certified big step but what they these are going to be required to do on the moon pretty tough challenge
3: yeah, and, uh, you know, some people think bigger is better, but we think the opposite. Hmm. And we have a very, very tiny rover, uh, which is uh, based on a um, one uh, that is used by the military and made by Recon Robotics. It's called a Throwbot. I don't know if you've seen uh, pictures of them. the Guys will throw the— Yeah, like infantry will throw it th- into right, a building and through a, a window. It has a camera and, you mm-hmm. know, other things, and it can report and move around. So we're, we're working on, on modifying that for moon use, but we're using, uh, using that as a little sentinel that goes out from a base station, which is a lander. It's kind of a hack on the, uh, the Luna 9 mission that the Russians did to the moon. It has petals that fold down. Yes, yeah. The robot will be... Emerging from that in a in a way that I won't describe yet, <laughs> well, <laughs> but, I, I, but hopefully will be acceptable.
0: <laughs> so silly question, because you wouldn't be in this otherwise. Mm-hmm. But you think you can win this?
3: Yeah, yeah. I, I wish we had another year, you know. <laughs> but uh, you know, that's it's always the case. But we've been working on this on, on this rocket system for uh, a long time. It was always intended to be kind of augmentable or could transform it from its, you know, single unit into as many units as were required for the mission.
0: Mm-hmm. You said it's the N8?
3: Yeah, the, the vehicle configuration that we'll use uh, for the Google Lunar XPRIZE, uh, Prize attempt flight is called the Neptune 8 Luna, and it's an eight-module variant of the Neptune series. Uh, it's equipped with enhanced engines. I mentioned before our standard engine is 7,500 pounds of thrust. This is a 20,000-pound thrust wow. engine. So we'll group eight of those, you know, carry our s- very small payload to the surface of the moon. It's uh, I think roughly uh, its about 25 pounds, something like that, to the surface. But it, it takes a lot, a lot of effort, a lot of thrust.
0: Yeah, obviously. Power
3: to, to lift even the tiniest amount.
0: If it was easy, unit. everybody would right, be doing
3: exactly, it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> And you're thinking beyond that.
0: I saw on the website a sample return spacecraft.
3: Yeah, we uh, we've always looked at the moon as a, you know a destination that we would commercially exploit and colonize. That was um, it was just a given. And in fact, the year we founded Interorbital Systems as a for-profit company, we founded Translunar Research hmm. as a scientific nonprofit, and that was always for not only that commercialization and uh, the colonization of our moon but for the moons in the so- in the solar system so uh, it it's important to us to you know, not just not just stay here but to go out and out and out yeah we
0: feel the same way
3: yeah yeah i mean that's kind of our destiny <laughs> <laughs>
0: and in fact uh you got a discount right now if you want to uh, put a down payment on your own moon rock.
3: That's right. And you can pay 10% for the privilege of buying uh, a portion of the booty that we bring back for the moon, right? We're looking at 2018 for that. And we, we do have... Um, Gosh, we do that's have, st-
0: I get, I'm sorry. That still mm-hmm. seems so ambitious. I mean, a sample return. How well, many times has
3: that been done? Count on one hand, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. But at that point, we will have gone to the moon twice, hopefully, already. So this is a this would be a rocket back sort of a, a deal. We have a lander and uh the central portion of that would maybe be the little collection unit. How about human space flight? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> our our original idea when in, in founding both these companies was to be able to fly ourselves and to go to the moon and other destinations. We like we like Venus a lot too.
0: Um, well you you don't want to land there. Know, don't you wanna be the, like
3: yeah, uh, cloud, you know I have, I have an article in Ad Astra, I think it's from like two thousand four probably. Called the floating cities of Venus. Definitely science that, fiction. That's, uh, no, not really. No, there's a there's an area in the the Venusian atmosphere that is uh, Earth like. We've talked about yeah. it on this
0: show, as a matter of fact, yeah. and uh, putting a balloon there, yeah. and or a research platform or with a humans on it. Floating city, yeah. right? But but then there's the Red Planet. I mean, you know, not too far from here. Elon Musk. Yeah. Just talked well, about flying a hundred people at a time on rockets. He can cover
3: that. I'd like it too. I'd like to visit there. <laughs> You know when you're looking for something to terraform, you want to go where there's an abundance, mm-hmm. not a scarcity. And in terms of Venus, you know it's too much of everything. Right? yeah yeah so you've got uh, but you've got all the components for uh, you know life support in terms of like you know you, you can pull oxygen out of the atmosphere, you can pull a, a variety of uh, all the all the things you need to build the civilization essentially, or to live off the land, even though you're in the you know the cloud layer, right. You've got an Earth-like zone in mm. there that can be used, so we're 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 excited about that. We're planning a, 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 I guess it would be the first private sector Venus mission as well. We're busy, yeah, <laughs> you know?
0: busy. And I mean, you, your rocket's currently small, won't stay mm-hmm. that way. Your payload's small, yep. But you're thinking real big. Does yeah. that say something about why you and Rod got into this in the first place?
3: Could be, could be. I mean, we. We always had the vision to do this. We wanted to do it. It was a personal love of all things space. So I, I think that drives all our thinking. You know, you start small, right? But uh, at least you start.
0: <laughs> <laughs> One step at a time. Randa, I have thoroughly enjoyed my visit. and It's fun sh-
3: talking with you as well.
0: I sure hope, obviously, if these things come together as you plan and hope they will next year... I look forward to talking again.
3: Look forward to it as well, definitely.
0: Randa Milliron, CEO of Interorbital Systems at the Mojave Air and Spaceport. We've got great images, video, and links on this week's show page at planetary.org radio. In December, a Japanese cargo transfer vehicle carried Tancredo-1 to the International Space Station. Starting with an Interorbital Systems Tubesat kit... The tiny spacecraft was built by middle school students in Brazil. It's the first iOS hardware to reach Earth orbit. Time to close out the first Planetary Radio episode of 2017 with What's Up? And Bruce Betts, the Director of Science and Technology for the Planetary Society, has joined us yet again. Happy New Year, Guy.
4: Happy New Year, Matt. There's
0: all kinds of good stuff going on and I f- hope it's going to be a good year in space.
4: How's the night sky starting out? Well it's starting out uh, good if you like your bright planets uh, still got Venus hanging out just dominating the uh, the western sky in the early evening looking like a super bright star and to its upper left uh, much much dimmer orange Mars Marsish Marsish orange <laughs> orangeish Mars. Yeah. And then in uh, the pre-dawn, we've got Jupiter already. It's actually rising uh, late evening, middle of the night, and then is up high in the south in the uh, pre-dawn.
0: I wonder if we can get Crayola to come out with a a crayon
4: that's that's Mars orange. (laughs) Well, you work on that. Meanwhile, we move on to this week in space history. 2004... Two events happened this week at nearly the same time. We had Stardust flying through the coma of a comet, later returning those samples to Earth, and the Spirit rover landing on Mars. That was one of the greatest moments on this radio show when I was talking
0: live with uh, a guy with the Stardust mission, and he saw it re-enter the atmosphere as we were talking. It was a a very cool moment.
4: On to Random Space (laughs) back.
0: What was that little rumble at the end
4: there? <laughs> that, that's my giant dog. <laughs> Sing along, giant dog. <laughs> that's Max. In honor of uh, going to the, the arbitrarily defined new year, but the length of a year is not arbitrary. As one orbit around the sun. A Pluto year is more than 90,000 days long. <laughs> yeah. Huh. That's a long, long year. That's a lot of days. Move but- on to the trivia contest. Who was the earliest-born human to reach space using the FAI definition of a hundred kilometers? And this one's uh, all complicated. How how'd we do?
0: We got a really nice response, I think, because of the prize. Normally, it's kind of reduced uh, in between uh, the holidays or among the holidays here. This one, we got a good turnout. You were talking about arbitrary limits or thresholds, and I guess yes. this is also kind of
4: one of them, right? That the Carmen. The Carmen line, named after Von Karman, the rocket science kind of guy who uh, was at JPL. But it actually turns out when I was looking into it as a bit of a physical basis, maybe I'll, I'll talk about it in the future that gets you where you balance things like lack of lift with uh, lack of atmosphere and orbital velocity and stuff like that. But still, it comes out to 98 point something kilometers. I said, hey, let's make it 100. <laughs>
1: Yeah,
0: this is why uh, von Karman, uh, they named an auditorium after him, because he was a smart guy. <laughs> <laughs>
4: he did, did a lot of stuff, but uh, <laughs> yes, this is the arbitrary definition of where space starts, uh, because of course the atmosphere blends into space, but mm. it, it, did, it did have a little tiny bit of physical basis. Random.org picked
0: out Vicki Knorr in Louisville, Kentucky, as uh, this week's winner, if she got it right. And I'm pretty sure she did, because this is the answer we got from virtually everybody. Vicki, uh, only been listening since May, has become a very enthusiastic uh, listener to the show. Somewhat inspired, too. She uh, let me know a couple of weeks ago that she is uh, going back to school as a, as an aerospace major. So uh, good oh, on Pete. you, Vicki. She said, Joe Walker, Joseph A. Walker, born... February 20, 1921, that's about five months before John Glenn, was the pilot of the first two spaceplane flights, She's talking about the X-15, of course, making him the
4: firstborn
0: human in space.
4: Yes, indeed. If you go to orbital, as people may have mentioned, uh, then it's uh, Georgie Beragovoy, I'm sure I pronounced his name wrong, who flew on so- Soyuz 3 in 1968. He was born about three months after Joe Walker. And then comes John Glenn. Vicki, you are going to get that really terrific print from
0: Marilyn Flynn, one of the space artists who was uh, on the show just a couple of weeks ago. Saturn from the surface of Titan. It is spectacular. And uh, we've got a very similar prize this week, so uh, stay tuned for that. We had a celebrity entrant, our friend Mark Raymond of the Dawn Mission. Uh, now orbiting series, actually been orbiting series for ages. He said the earliest born human to reach space was Joseph Walker. Flew an X-15 above 100 kilometers on two occasions back to back. He says I presume he was the earliest born organism of any type to reach space. (Parentheses except perhaps for some unfortunate and unknown ones blasted into space by devastating asteroidal or protoplanetary impacts.) <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, we don't, we don't have their names. I'm sorry.
0: And I told you that Baragroy of uh, Better Go. Let me try that again. Better Govoy would come up again. Mark is like the ultimate space fan, uh, as you may know. Many years ago, he got uh, Better Govoy's autograph. as oh, wow. A, yeah, the earliest born human to reach orbit. Pretty cool, Mark. That's just part of his amazing collection. We got more. Ilya Schwartz in Columbia, Maryland, the earliest born woman. Valentina Tereshkova, born in 1937, also the first woman in space, right? Indeed, yes. This answer from Dave Oliver, he says, Actually, the real answer is Icarus.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Did Icarus pass the Carmen line? I, not I probably, think, yeah, I yeah, probably. probably, yeah. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Probably a lot closer with that whole sun thing.
0: Not enough sunscreen. And uh, finally, Kurt Lewis in uh, Missouri, Texas, Missouri City, Texas, wants to know if we know of a slightly used X-15 for sale.
4: Uh, no. Uh, check eBay. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it's got everything else. We're ready for next week's contest and uh, another amazing
4: prize. Which is longer? Back to our theme of years. Which is longer, a Jupiter year, or how long planetary radio has been airing? <laughs> That's great. (laughs) Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Are we older than a Jupiter year? You have this time until
0: the 10th. That would be January 10th of the new year, 2017, at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the uh, answer. Here's the prize. We have from our friend Rick Sternbach, who, of course, is the space artist, science fiction designer, illustrator uh, work with Michael Kuda to give Star Trek basically the look it had for decades, uh, beginning with Star Trek Next Generation. Rick has donated a print, which I think you have seen. He I calls have. It, yeah, it's, isn't it something? Yes, it is. It's called Molten Earth, and it actually ended up. Uh, as a set piece on Star Trek The Next Generation, although he did it for the original Cosmos series with uh, Carl Sagan. It is pretty spectacular, and it could be yours if you have the right
4: answer, and you're chosen by random.org. Very cool prize. Yeah. I think we're done. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about what type of chocolate you want this new year. (laughs) Thank you, and good night more chocolate oh okay I'm, I'm sorry i'm just i can't stop thinking about it. dark chocolate please of course that's uh, bruce and
0: i didn't know he preferred dark chocolate until just this moment he's a he's a man of fine taste and he's the director of science and technology for the planetary society he joins us every week here for what's up planetary radio is produced by the planetary society in pasadena california Is made possible by its Rocket Geek members. Danielle Gunn is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. I'm Matt Kaplan. Clear skies.